Thanks, Jill. Good morning, everybody. So I usually end what I'm reading saying, thank, or this is the word of the Lord. And we had people this morning who actually responded the way that I grew up with people responding. So I want to invite you all to respond when I say, this is the word of the Lord, to say, thanks be to God. So I'll give it a little pause sort of at the end. Um, the other thing is that at High Point, we believe the Bible is the word of God. So that regardless of how many times that I mess up reading anything, that this is God's word to his people. So we want to focus on that and the importance of that and not how well I read, so. <laughs> From verse one. In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of the people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought that there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because of the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for me. As Jill uh, mentioned earlier, Pastor Nick is going to be 
out for the month of July, connecting with his family. The elders started talking about Nick's uh, need after five years of running hard and preaching uh, every week. Uh, last October-ish, November-ish, we started talking about the need for him to have an extended break. So this July, we're going to be preaching in the book of Ruth, myself, the first two weeks, and then Vince, uh, weeks three and four. And then uh, next uh, year, uh, July, uh, June, July, and August, he's going to have a more extended uh, break. And, and so just, just be praying for Nick and his family um, that they would just have a great time of recuperation. Uh, for now, we are going to dive into the book of Ruth. Um, in 2002, Pastor Alfred Hill um, was uh, in need of a vacation after a 26-year pastorate at the Pilgrim Rest Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, great things had happened. He started pastoring. The church was, was tiny. Now it was large and flourishing. Uh, they, they, they started having all, no uh, new conversions. Now every Sunday they were having conversions. The church was flourishing. Uh, he was happily married, uh, had a teenage son. Things were going uh, wonderfully great. But it was time for a break, so he, he got in, in his car and took the drive from, from Memphis to New Orleans for about a week off with his, uh, with his bride. And when they got to New Orleans, and, uh, how many of you had a chance to be, go to the Big Easy? Raise your hand if you ever been to New Orleans. Uh, there's just awesome food, right? There's just the best food in the, in the world is found in New Orleans. You know, my, my wife is a decent uh, down-home kind of southern cook, but nothing compared to what you get it's in the New Orleans and, and at breakfast they have these things called beignets they're like these souped up donuts they're hyped up donuts they, they taste so good they come the best way to eat them is fresh out of the oven with powdered sugar on top all right so they're just having a great time great meals uh, every day uh, every evening jazz in New Orleans just having a great time uh, Alfred had left at home uh, some medicine so he needed to go to Walgreens to fill a, uh, a prescription. So he gets in his car and sets out for a drive, gets to a light and has to stop. He sees two young men approaching him, thought that was a little strange, and they kept approaching him. And then when they got up on his car, they pulled a gun out and they said, listen, this is a robbery, get out of the car. Uh, we don't wanna hurt you. And so Alfred just takes off as fast as he can in his car. And the two assailants, one of them has a gun, he starts shooting, shoots several uh, shots into the car. About two blocks away from where he is, uh, from where the, uh, the, sh the shooting begins, the police find Alfred uh, dead in his car. Um, so, so this is what happens. Um, uh, imagine this widow, the police are scrambling, trying to figure out, you know, where this guy is staying, where his wife is. They find her in the hotel. She gets this phone call and visit from the police, right? She's, she's totally devastated. Fast forward a couple of years, uh, the Memphis newspaper is following up on the story. Uh, the, the two assailants were caught, they were tried, they were jailed, and she had a chance to go through the trial, and she finds out some details. They wanted to steal a luxury vehicle because they were going to strip it down for parts, and, and basically it was the nicest car that they saw, and that's how they, they chose to, to do this. And she's commenting to the, to the reporter, and she says, 
You know, after all these years, it's probably been four or five years now, she says, I'm trying to get my mind around the fact that we went out from Memphis to New Orleans with my husband, and I had to come back without him. This story in Ruth is a bit like this. Uh, it's a tragedy in parts. Um, there's a famine that is happening in Bethlehem. A man and his wife, Elimelech and his wife, uh, Naomi, set out with their two sons, Malon and Chilion. Because of this severe famine, they go to Moab about 50 miles away so that they could have jobs so that they could eat. And they go. And that what the way the story says is that uh, shortly thereafter, the husband dies. The sons marry two women from the town, Orpah and, and Ruth. And it says after 10 years of marriage, there's no children. And, and so now we have this, this, uh, this widow, Naomi, with no husband and, and, and no kids. Uh, I asked my wife as I was thinking about this, for, to give me a sense for what the state of mind uh, Naomi might be in. And since she has a husband and two kids, I said, okay, so I'm out of the picture, and now the two boys sitting over there to the left. Anyway, and so, and so I said, well, how do you feel? And she says, Lloyd, you know, as a wife, we kind of get our minds around as we get older, the potential for the husband maybe dying suddenly and going to the Lord. And, and, but I, I never could fathom at, this, uh, at a similar time losing both sons. So she's like totally devastated. That is the tragedy of the story, right? But this story is more than about tragedy. It's also after chapter one and at the end of chapter one, it is a story of redemption. It is a story of restoration because we see right after the tragedy, God providing for Naomi and then Ruth, right after the tragedy, uh, God steps in and through a close relative, there's food and then there's the hope of an even bigger blessing. Because in the darkest of times, God is plotting for our good. This is a story about providence or providence, the ways in which our God creates us and sustains us to the very end. I kind of like the way uh, Millard Erickson defines this term. Here's how he defines providence. The continuing action of God by which he preserves in existence the creation which he has brought into being and guides it to his intended purposes for it. I really appreciated um, Pastor Nick's sermon uh, last week because he took us back to the fundamental truths of God's creation. How he created us and he blessed us that it was good male and female, and it is good. Male and female to rule over the, the earth, and it is good. There are intended consequences that God is directing all of us on. That's what providence is about. So this is what we're gonna do. This week, 
I'm going to talk about what I think is the theme of chapter one. And it's this. In fact, I think this is the theme of the entire book, that in the darkest of times, God is planning for our good. Next week, I'm going to talk about the grace of God and how awesome it is. Then after that, my good friend Vincent is going to preach on chapters three and four of this four-part series. So let's jump right into this. In the darkest of times, God is plotting for our good. Here's my first, I'm going to make a couple observations about two, three key observations on this. The providence of God extends over all our calamities. So here's the facts. Famine, severe famine comes. This is verses one through five. The family flees Bethlehem, goes to Moab 50 miles away, starts working, all right, the father dies. All right, that's strike number one, right? Uh, it says that the two sons marry women, Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Uh, it says that after 10 years, no children, and the two sons die. So we've got this widow, her, her husband's line, Elimelech's line, he's from the tribe of Judah. His particular line is on the teetering on the verge of extinction. Okay? Uh, you, you need to understand that in these ancient times, for a woman to not to have a husband and children is probably the, the worst fate for a woman, right? There are some things that I think are, are good about how our world has changed. I think women would think differently now, that they would understand that, they, that there's the Lord and that there's other provisions that God has had. But in this time, in this cultural context, this is probably the worst thing that could happen to her. So the question that immediately comes up is, what is this, what is going on? What has happened? Because in order for you and I, if we're in this crisis situation, we've got to know what has happened so that we can know what to do. And so theologians have come up with two ideas. Here are the two ideas. Some say that this was sin. That when there's a famine in the land, right, this is the time of the judges. This is before the kings are started, starting with King Saul. This is the, the intermediate period, starting with Joshua, where the people, uh, God raises up a military ruler and a judge to govern the, the land. And the people are kind of doing things in their own kinds of ways. This is that era of time, right? And so what is going on here is that they're saying, listen, God promised that if there was a famine, there's a sign of covenant unfaithfulness. That there must have been some sin going on in Judah throughout Israel that caused God to bring this famine. And so the best thing to do would have been to fast, would have been to pray right there in Bethlehem, right, and ask God for deliverance. Right? But that, so the first thing they say is that there's a sin. Then the second thing they say, that they, they should have stayed, the second point is that they shouldn't have married these strange women. I always laugh with my sons, right? I tell them, you're a Christian boys. Marry godly women. We don't care. I don't care. Tall, short, whatever, whatever nationality, right? I tell my sons, give me godly women and offspring, right? So they've, I've been praying for this since they were born, right? So some of the theologians say this. They say this, this is a problem. Here's what we're seeing. Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4. Do not intermarry with them. This is God giving the law to Moses. 
Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and, and you, he will destroy you. And if those of you who've read the, the Old Testament know that this was kind of a common thing. In fact, this was the undoing of Solomon, if you remember. The scripture says he loved many strange women. So that what, the, what these theologians are saying is, this is real simple what's happened here. They went where they weren't supposed to go, and they married who they weren't supposed to marry. It was all about sin. And then there's other theologians that think differently. They say, listen, you want to be real careful about the text, and you don't want to remove grace that, that, that God gave you. This is what the, the text really says. It says that that is true. God said, don't intermarry, but he gave specific tribes that were in that, that territory. And these are the tribes. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Peritites, the Evites, and the Jebusites. They say, listen, you know, don't remove the grace that, that wasn't there. It wasn't until much later, actually, when the Jews went into dispersion because of their sin and then came back to the promised land that we can read in either Ezra or Nehemiah, I forget which, where God specifically said, beware of the Moabites. But at this time, there wasn't an admonition against them. I kind of like what, what um, Piper says about this. This is John Piper. He says this, God's providence is sometimes very hard. It's true, God has dealt bitterly with Naomi, at least in the short run. It could only feel like bitterness. Perhaps someone will say it was all owing to the sin of going to Moab and marrying foreign wives. Maybe so, but not necessarily. Psalms 34 and 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Remember of the story of righteous Job, right? Had done no evil. Right? Through God's particular plan, he allowed Satan to attack him. He was righteous at the beginning of the trial. He was righteous at the end of the trial. So that's not necessarily the case. Neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament promises that believers will escape affliction in this life. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14 and 22. It won't be too long before we'll get to that part of the story of Acts. And the one who suffered the most, Jesus Christ, is the one who did no sin. So there is no sure connection between our suffering and our behavior. It is not at all certain, therefore, that Naomi's affliction was owing to God's displeasure with her. What's interesting about this text is there's just these statements of facts. There's a famine, they go, the husband dies, the kids die. And over the four chapters, there's no clear indication, not one indictment at all, of the sin of Elimelech or Naomi or Ruth. Not one indictment at all. So I fall into this second camp that it's just not clear. It's not clear that what happens here is because of their sin. So God is working some other purposes. What I want you to know is that as you go through struggles, it is good to question whether you're out of fellowship with God, if you're a Christian, in terms of your behavior, because he does discipline his children. But there is no sure, hard, fast rule that sin results in tragedy. This is not always true. But our friend, Naomi, is in this tough situation. No heir, no husband, no children, Poverty, these two daughters-in-law that are looking towards her, 
And, and, and her attitude might not be exactly what you would like it to be. It, it, it's kind of like my, what my attitude is when I go through hard times. Don't call me Naomi. That word means pleasantness. Don't call me pleasantness. She told them, call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full. Husband, children, future. But, I, but the Lord has brought me back empty. No husband, no children. Why call me uh, pleasant? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So she's in this difficult situation, and she's got to do something. She's got some decisions to make. And what I'm suggesting is to you is that the thing to do is that when calamity strikes you, and you can't quite figure out what it is, if you're angry, that's okay. Turn that anger to God. If you're bitter, you know, God can work that through. Turn that over to the Lord, right? If, you just, if, you're, if you're just unclear about what to do. I think of some of the trials that people at our church are going through. Let me describe some of them to you. I think of this one family who, uh, this, this now widow, husband got sick and over the course of a couple of years uh, died. And now she's left there um, and God is taking care of her, but it's, she's here, she's dealing with a new reality with a child. I think of another situation here. This is all in the last six months. I think of another situation of uh, a, a, a woman whose husband just suddenly died out of, out of nowhere. The husband dies and she's got to cope and she's got to manage with that. I think of another situation of a young family here at our church just the last six months and uh, marriage, a young family, they have a child, and the child dies suddenly. And then I got thinking about myself. And I got to thinking about this, my Naomi experience. Uh, 25 years ago, uh, after we got married, my wife Deborah got pregnant. Five months into the pregnancy, she goes into labor. She has a daughter, we have a daughter. After 30 hours of labor, the child, Christian Nicole, dies in four months, or excuse me, in four hours, four hours at the hospital. So my wife's been in labor 30 hours. And when we got married, uh, we didn't have this in, this wasn't in mind. This wasn't part of the plan, all right? At 25, I'm still trying to figure out what being a man is about. And now I've got a wife and I'm struggling with this ultimate, this tremendous grief. And so my wife is like, you know, Lloyd, you need to kind of go home. I, I need to get some sleep. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, go home to what? She's not there, no child. I don't, I'm totally unprepared for this reality. And I make my trek back home, I go home. And God begins the restoration process. These families that are going through this ordeal right now, no child, no husbands, and myself have learned, had to learn some things about God. And this is what we've had to learn about him. That God comforts us in our suffering by restoring life. When Christian Nicole died, I couldn't fathom what was next. 
I couldn't even recognize how my wife was even going to come back to our apartment in Oak Park, Illinois. I, I, I had no clue. I didn't know that God was planning my restoration at that time. And what I want to say to you is in Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 22, what we begin to see is God restoring this family. Here's the first thing that he does. Ruth 1, 6 through 7. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing them food, this is what Naomi said. She said, I'm his people too. She, she remembered, in fact, she still owned some land. She was poor, but she still owned some land back in Bethlehem. In, in fact, the rules were set up, the law was such that when you gleaned a field in Israel, that every farmer was to leave some, the, the, the field not totally gleaned. Some, some sheaves would be there for the poor and the foreign. So she knows that she has land back in Bethlehem. She knows that now that God has blessed his people, the curse is over, the famine is over, and she remembers that she's God's child. That's the first thing. God sends them back to Bethlehem. She and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So that was the first thing is that God gave clear direction. One of the things that we've got to do when we're in the throes of bitterness and toughness is we've got to keep our eyes and ears open to God's direction. That's why when you're, going, when you're struggling, this isn't the right time to stop reading your Bible. In, in fact, if, if you don't have a good kind of daily devotional, when you're struggling, this might be the right time to start that process. This would be the time to make it to church, to listen to the sermons, because this would be the time not to stop connecting with your Christian friends. This would be the time to connect with your Christian friends, because you want to hear God's direction. You want to see how God is going to open up a window of opportunity, of blessing for you to get out of this difficult situation. So the first thing he does is he sends them back. The second thing he does is he gives her a companion. So they're on this trek back. And somewhere between Moab and Bethlehem, Naomi begins to think about these daughters. And she says, listen, man, if you come back to Bethlehem with me, you're gonna be foreign women, right? I don't have much there. It seems to me that it would be better for you young ladies if you stayed here in Moab, if you go back to your mom's house, you're young enough that you can find new husbands. So she wants to send them back. But the, the, the women are insistent. She gives them this blessing. In fact, she prays for them. She wants, she wants so much the best for these daughters that she prays a blessing on them. She asks God, she says, may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. I don't have time to preach this sermon, but I would like to take this up one time. I would like to ask husbands, are their wives finding spiritual and physical rest in their homes? That's a question for me. Lloyd, is your wife Deborah finding rest in your home or just trouble? No time for that sermon. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud. It's a good sermon, wouldn't that be a good one? She kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you. The daughters wanted to go. 
They, they had connected with their mother-in-law. They were honorable women. They were willing to go back, right? Uh, even so much so that um, she says to them, listen, in, in reference to the Leverite law, this is the law of the brother, of the brother, of the, of, the, of the son-in-law. This is how the law worked. That if Jason died, his brother Jared would, would marry Jason's widow. And the idea is that so that the land, they look at each other like, I'm marrying no girlfriend. The, the land, the idea is that the land would stay in the family. Yeah, they're like, no. The land would stay in the family, right? And then the brother would, would raise up an heir to the deceased brother, right? So what she's saying is, listen, even if I ha could, could remarry, and I'm, I'm too old to re remarry, but even if I could, you women are too young to wait. It's just totally impractical. I'm blessing you. I want the best for you. I want you to stay. I want you to get the passion between these, these friends, these dear, the, the mother-in-law and her daughters. It's not like the kind of relationship some of us have with our mother-in-law. I'm, I'm, I'm blessed. I just spent the weekend, July 4th, with my mother-in-law. I love her to death. It's awesome. And they have this kind of great relationship, okay? She's trying to send them back. And so Oprah, she's like, she starts thinking about this practically. She's like, listen, you know, I kind of like it in Moab. She is releasing me. So she takes advantage of this opportunity and she says she does the practical thing. She does the logical thing and she stays and we hear nothing more about her story. But, but in Ruth, God gives a different spirit. This is what Ruth does. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law Orpah is on her way back to Moab. To her people and her gods. Go back with her. It's the logical thing to do. It's the pragmatic thing to do. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my people. So what is happening now is God is beginning to show us a little bit of his providential plan, of his sovereignty. God planned, here's the light, that this one Moabite woman who had no real people in God was now giving up, up a people who didn't know the light before was now getting the light of Jehovah God. What we're seeing is a radical conversion story right here. And we're beginning to see that in the midst of your darkness, God is doing some redemptive things in the midst of your family, in the midst of your friends, in the midst of the body of Christ, out here in Dane County, in the midst of your difficulties. I remember Dennis Hurl talking about this when he was going through his ordeal, about how he was wondering how God was going to do redemptive things through his life. This is how we Christians think. This is the hope of the gospel. So this is what God is doing in this story. It wasn't about just the death, it was about the life of this Moabite foreigner that God was taking in non-Jews even in the Old Testament. This tremendous faith. So we see this glimmer of light in this story. And God brings these two people together. They need each other so much, right? They have so much in common. They have to, to commiserate on that 50-mile walk back. They know each other's pain, right? They, they, they have this tremendous affection for each other, 
right? They are fully committed to God, right? There's this young woman, she has now made a commitment to God, right? She needs a mentor, women's mentoring program. She needs a mentor. She's just come to real practical faith, and she needs someone to show her how to live godly. And who would be best for this than this mother-in-law who already knows her? What God is doing by bringing them together is he's beginning the process of restoring their life. That's what's going on here. My mother helped me see this practically. When she was 63 years old, her knees started giving out. She loved to work, her kids were grown. She wanted to work so bad, she tried to go back to work at Delta, but she to no avail. And so she, she was now retired and she's trying to figure out, what am I gonna do with all these years? I'm used to being productive, I'm used to doing things. So she had grandchildren, so she started just taking care of her grandchildren. And you should see my mom, she's now 84 years old, when her grandchildren stop by. When you should see my mom when children are around, it just brings her life. So she started with grandchildren. After a few years, it was great-grandchildren. Then the great-grandchildren moved to Oregon, and it was the neighborhood children because she wanted to be invested in the future. In fact, that, if you ask my mom, what has she been doing over these 23 years or 21 years of retirement, she'd say, I've been investing what God has invested in me in the next generation. So that God is using this as a way to restore or redeem her retirement years. That is what God is doing with these two women. He's about to show and to do something new in their lives, something beyond their wildest imagination. Because we've got to remember that in the darkest of times, God is planning for our good. So we get to the end of this chapter, and what do we see? Ruth 1 and 22 says this, said, Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth. It's very interesting what we see in this text. In verse 1, we see a severe famine. But in verse 22, we see the light of hope. Accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So God is about to do something new in this life. Naomi has a godly close relative named Boaz, a wonderful man. And what the, the redemption that, that's going to unfold is that this young woman, Ruth, and this man, Boaz, are going to start a new life together. Ruth 4, 13 to 22. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, then Lord enabled her to conceive. Don't miss this. So for 10 years, this woman, Ruth, was having relations with her husband, Malon, and no children. But in this blessed marriage, the very first time it looks like here in the text, God enables her to have a child. This is what the blessing of God can do in your life. The Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. There's two themes in this book that you've got to know, two um, principles from the scripture. The first I told you, the Leverite marriage, right? The brother-in-law marriage. And here's the second one. And this one is called the Goel, the guardian redeemer. In short, 
Uh, if you got poor, if you became poor and you had to sell your land, your closest male relative was to buy the land and restore the, it for you. And in fact, he would have to sell it back to you. The idea was that God, if you ran into difficulties, God was going to restore and forgive and keep you. So this guardian redeemer was this son that was born. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better than you than seven sons. Don't miss this. There are some women that I know in my family, sisters, natural, who would like to marry and God hasn't provided them a husband. What we need to recognize is that if it, it so happens that you happen to be a man or a woman and God doesn't send you a wife, God is not cursing you. That he has blessed you with brothers and sisters around you who are better than a brother or a sister. I think about my dad, my father passed away and sometimes I need a father figure. And what God has done is through my fellowship with, with elders, older men, some 10, 12 years, is he has given me new fathers. He has given me new brothers, people that I can walk with. In fact, people that I have more in fellowship with than my own natural brothers who don't have as much of a, of a spiritual foundation. I have more fellowship with the new brothers that God has given me than the old brothers. This is what God does by giving us a family. That's why we're in the family of God. And we need to take full advantage of this. This is what is being said, that, that this woman, Ruth, is better than to you. She's honorable, trustworthy, loves you, loyal, better than you, than, to you than seven sons. And this woman, God blessed, the righteous woman, God has blessed you to give birth to a, a grandson. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. Look where she started out. Three dead men around her. Now Naomi has life, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Then this is the line of Perez. Perez is the son of Judah, the son of Jacob. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadad, Abinadad the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon. Turn your Bibles to Matthew, don't do it now, and you'll see that Salmon married Rahab the prostitute from Jericho. Rahab the prostitute from Jericho becomes a, a convert to the faith. They have a righteous son named Boaz. Listen. We talk a little bit about race relations. In Jesus, in Christ, our cultural identities become less significant. That God is restoring, he's doing something new. He did something new in this family in two different generations. So that this Boaz is biracial. He is both from Jericho and a faithful Jew, right? And, and also then his son Obed, biracial. But in Jesus Christ, in the, faith of, in the faith of God, God is doing something new. Salmon marries Rahab and has Boaz. Boaz marries Ruth and has Obed. Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, and David in the line of Jesus Christ. So that at the end of the day, in the darkness of times, God is working for your good.
I like the way that John Piper has talked about this. He says it this way. We must remember as we face difficult times that God's bitter providences are not his last word. So there's hope for you if you're going through tough times this year, like some of the people in our congregation are. Doris Hill is a friend of mine. Um, I got to know her when I went on a missions trip in 2003, and she was good friends of my sister-in-law. She heard about me going on this missions trip and about these orphans that we were taking care of in Haiti. And she, not even seeing me or, this, or these uh, orphans, and this is around the time she lost her husband. I didn't notice a year after she lost her husband, she starts investing in orphans in Haiti. So she, she sends $1,000 to, this, to this, uh, this missionary organization, this church in Haiti. About um, two weeks before Alfred and Doris launched off to go from Memphis to New Orleans, they got this idea to start this community center, this after-school program. They call this after-school program ESPN. It's got nothing to do with sports, right? E, e stands for education, scholarship, preparation, and nurture. They serve in a very poor, pretty much all black uh, inner city area that's been struck with, with blight. And they, they felt like they needed to do something to help kids succeed. So she started this program in, in, uh, there in around 2002, two, just two weeks before her husband was gonna be killed. And then there's a reporter that does a story with her at the 13th year anniversary for this program. And he's asking her, he said, why, are you, why did you do this program? And here's what she said. He said, these children that I've seen over these 13 years, I just wanna give you three of the stories as to why I, I wanted to help bring life here. She said, there's a child whose mother was found dead and stuffed in a trash bin behind the church, her church. The two children who saw a man shot to death at a nearby car wash. The children whose 13-year-old classmate was convicted of murdering another girl who was trying to break up a fight. She says, these babies are surrounded by so many negative influences. Doris says, as she sits in a classroom filled with books, warm colors, and caring adults, they need a safe place where they can go after school just to be children for a while. After Alfred was killed, I wasn't sure if I could go on with this program, says Doris, whose goal it is sometimes she wants to open up a charter school. But he would not have wanted this to disrupt our dream. So I had to stay engaged in the dream. If I sit around and can do it, but I don't, that's unacceptable. These children need all of us to intervene on her behalf. You see, she's put her passions into these children. And so she only has one natural child, but she's got over a hundred spiritual children that she is helping to create a future for in Christ Jesus. Because they're not just getting academic preparation. They're getting the gospel when they go to these programs. So uh, what's been the result of this, this uh, program there? 100% of the kids that go to her program graduate on time. And you might say, oh, Lord, that's not that big of a deal. No. Well, guess what the on-time graduation rate in Madison is for black kids? It's less than 60%. So she has found that by investing in these children, she's able, through Christ's strength, to help these children move along on the right path. And she's invested not only in children in Memphis, but also in Haiti. She stayed deeply engaged in her church because 
She knows something. That our God brings resurrection out of death. That's why I love Jesus so much. That in the midst of destruction, in the midst of devastation, it could be that some seeds will fall to the ground, that some Christians will die. But out of that death, God is bringing restoration for others. God is building his kingdom even when he calls some of us to death. Did you know that? In the darkest of times, God is plotting for your good. I just want to say one more thing before I close this message. If you're not going in through a fiery trial right now, this would be one of those messages that you want to take a mental note of. Uh, as I talk with Christians, my mom used to have this saying, you don't understand me, but just, just live for a little longer. She said, you don't get it right now. You don't get it right now, but just hang in there with me. This is one of those sermons. Even if you haven't gone through this kind of a trial, if God gives you many years, you're going to either go through one like this or you're going to have to walk a friend, a brother, or sister through a trial like this. So here's how God got me through when I was going through my trial. I want to leave you with this thought. There was four things of application that God did to get me through. The first was he helped me remember God's promises. When I got home to that apartment room in River Forest in Oak Park, I wasn't 25 years old. I wasn't that deep. And I was a Christian, but I wasn't deep in the word. And I, out of desperation, I reached for a Bible. Out of desperation, I came to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and where it talks about the resurrection, the new life, that out of death, God was creating a new body. And I remember then what David had to say when he and Bathsheba had that child, and the child died, and he was fat, trying to figure out how to, how to get his grave clothes off and how to stop fasting. He said, he remembered, he said, listen, the child can't come back to me, but I can go back to the child. You see, in, there is a hope for us that Debbie and I are going to see Christian Nicole, that when death isn't the end, death is just the beginning for, for us, that we have an eternity with God. We have an eternity to fellowship with each other. God needs to remind me of that because at the time, all I could see was devastation and destruction. That's the first thing that, that God reminded me of, his promises. The second thing is the comfort of friends. My wife really needed this. She's really close to her sister. She's got one sister, natural. And then she had three or four other sisters that were just as good as a sister. And they were like, how are you doing, honey? And how can, how can we help you? They cooked meals and they prayed and they got on my nerves. They were calling all the time. I was like, honey, I'm trying to get some sleep. And she, but she needed that, she needed the care. And I needed that too, I just didn't know it. But she was smart enough to know that she needed someone to be close and to help that was the second two, the comfort of good friends. That's how God got us through. The third one was recovery time. So she was able to be off for about a month. They only gave me a week off. But you need this time to just stop and just, God, what is going on here? What are you trying to tell me? What do I need to learn? I need this time to be humble and quiet before the Lord. And so I had about a week and wifey had about a month to do that. And here's the last thing, really important. We stayed in fellowship in the church. Here's what I have found. When things are really going well in the Christian's life, they seem to go off. They get married. They don't need to, the business is going great. And they stop. I'm too busy to go to church, you hear them say. Things are going great. They don't need Jesus. Or if things are going really bad, they're angry. And why is this happening to me? Don't fall into either of those extremes. When good, bad, in between, God is your God. 
And he is your provider in all things. So when you're going through difficult times, think of these four points of applications. Remember God's promises. The comfort of good friends is always helpful. Take some time to just deal with the pain. It's okay. I don't even care if you happen to be bitter for a minute. That's cool. God don't mind that. He can help you walk through that. And stay in fellowship with the saints. Because it's really true that in the darkest of times, God is plotting for your good. Let us close in prayer. Lord, I am excited as I can be about the fact that you are the resurrection and the life. I don't have to be afraid that death is the final say on anything. I know that you rose to life so that you could raise all who placed their faith in you to life. And I am experiencing that life now, spiritually, and I look forward to totally restored life and a, and a new body. And Lord, I pray that you would use this message to prepare us to help somebody else as they have to walk through a difficult time or to help us when we've got to walk through it ourselves. Because Lord, we recognize that we've got to learn not just to take good from your hand, but also to take difficulty. Because through the difficulty, Lord, you are maturing and strengthening and pruning and building your kingdom. And to that we say hallelujah, even when it hurts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, thanks Lloyd. Would you stand and sing with us?